This is the Nordic Asia podcast. Welcome to this episode of the Nordic Asia podcast. This is a collaboration between the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies in Copenhagen and the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Turku in Finland. I'm Petra Desitova and I am a postdoctoral researcher at the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies here in Copenhagen. It is my great pleasure today to introduce Dr. Martin Zieger, Professor of Thai Studies at the University of Leeds, who is an expert on Thai Buddhism. Martin has also set up a Thai studies program at Leeds in 2004 that is still running to this date and I am actually one of the former students so this is also a personal pleasure of mine to be able to have Martin on this program so welcome to this podcast Martin. Thank you for inviting me Petra, um, it's really nice to talk with you today. Yes it is lovely and also quite unusually the weather in Copenhagen and it seems in Leeds is lovely as well. <laughs> uh, unfortunately it's not, it's raining, it has been raining the whole day. I thought I could see a bit of sun behind you so that's a shame. But... No unfortunately not, no, it must be something else. Today we are actually going to talk about your recent book publication titled Gender and the Path to Awakening, Hidden Histories of Nuns in Modern Thai Buddhism. And this book has been published by Silkworm Books and in Europe it actually has been published by our own Nordic Institute of Asian Studies Press. It came out in 2018. This is a very, very interesting book and I do remember that some of the research that actually went into this book you actually talked about in Leeds whilst I was there as a student. But what I'm really interested to know is how did you become interested in this topic of female Buddhist practitioners? Well, before I answer this question, I maybe should first of all mention that I do not have an academic background in gender studies. Mm -hmm. I mean, my background, as we just mentioned, is actually Thai studies and Buddhist studies. And my interest in the study of biographies and the sociological teaching and practice and also veneration of female practitioners in Thai Buddhism has developed over the course of time. I think it was triggered by things I read about women in Buddhism some 15 or 20 years ago and then compared with my own experience gained during the time when I was a Theravada Buddhist monk in a monastery in northern Thailand from 1997 to 2000. During my time as a monk and um, afterwards when I was doing research as part of my PhD, I had the opportunity to observe women in the lived tradition of Thai Buddhism. Mm -hmm. What I read in the existing literature at that time on Buddhism and Thai Buddhism didn't quite match or well, at least cover what I was aware of and had seen and experienced myself. And also, and I think very importantly, in my research, I came by chance across some very rare texts also in the 1930s by a woman whose name is Kun Yingyai. And um, these texts fascinate me a lot because of their style, but also, and I say predominantly because of, their, of the impressive knowledge that they are based on. But it's not only Kun Yingyai's texts that fascinate me a lot, it's also her extraordinary life and the way she developed such a profound understanding of Buddhist scriptures. So this all is hugely interesting and it, well has fascinated me ever since. After Kun Yingyai's death in 1944, her major prose texts on Buddhist teaching were put into the mouth of a monk who actually never claimed to have been the author of these texts. At the moment it's not entirely clear when and how this happened, but it must have happened some 25 to 30 years ago, if not much longer. 
Anyhow, this monk, Long Bu Man, is one of the most famous monks in Thailand. He passed away in 1949 and has been by many regarded and revered, in fact, as a national saint, a fully awakened being. And given his importance for Thai Buddhism, there's a lot of hagiographical and academic literature on this monk. But as I just mentioned, Long Bu Man has actually never claimed to have authored these texts. So somehow, some time after his death, people started to believe that he was the author. In fact, when I was a monk, um, I possessed a number of these texts and studied them and was quite familiar with these texts and myself believing that they were written by Long Bu Man. However, over the course of my research then on female practitioners, it became clear that with one particular text attributed to him, something was strange, something mm-hmm feel quite right about him being the author of this very text. So with the help of a grant from the British Academy and together with my Thai co-researcher, who's a very good friend, um, I eventually, after several years of research, found conclusive evidence that proved that the text I just referred to was actually authored by Kun Ying Yai. And I became very excited, of course, about this discovery. And we went on to find many more texts authored by Kun Ying Yai and also other fascinating Thai Buddhist women of or before her time. And it became clear that there were many more texts authored by female practitioners, but these texts simply have been forgotten. It was, of course, a very exciting journey of discovery and surprise. Well, I should maybe say discoveries, but I would certainly say that having been able to show that the author of these important and widely read Thai Buddhist texts was actually not a highly revered Buddhist saint, but rather unknown woman, is certainly a one-in-a-lifetime discovery that made me want to study more about Kun Ying Yai and other women of her time or before her time, and how, very important, how they were able to develop such an impressive knowledge without having been able to become ordained as fully ordained nun. A fully ordained nun in the Theravada tradition is called Pikuni, Pikuni Pali, and the Pikuni order is believed to have died out some 1,000 years ago. Now, in my book, I also talk about these discoveries and their implications in terms of authorship, learning in monastic learning environments, gender relations, etc. Whilst my book is based on my study of texts by or about female practitioners, it also draws on ethnographic work I pursued in Thai monasteries, nunneries, and places of veneration of Thai female practitioners. You did mention when you were saying that the the female Buddhist nun order has actually disappeared a long time ago. Why was that the case? Well, the female Buddhist order, so-called Pikuni, that I just mentioned, is believed to have vanished some 1,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. But according to traditional understanding and interpretation of monastic law in the Theravada tradition, in order to ordain a nun, you have to have nuns who can perform their part of the ordination um, procedure. Mm-hmm. Now, since we do not have nuns any longer, it's simply not possible to do so. And probably the most authoritative expression of this stance is a monastic regulation, which was promulgated by the then Thai Supreme Patriarch in the late 1920s, which is still valid in Thailand. This decree forbids Thai monks and also novices to ordain women as nuns, as fully ordained nuns or novices. So the then patriarch argued that a valid ordination procedure for female novice as prescribed by the Pali canonical law has to be performed with the help of Theravada Pikuni. So to put it simple, the traditional understanding in this regard in Thailand is that in order to give ordination as a fully ordained nun in Theravada Buddhism, you need fully ordained nuns 
who can perform their part of the ordination. But as the lineage of fully ordained nuns has in Theravada has died out, was interrupted, you cannot ordain women as fully ordained nuns any longer. But uh, of course, as you can imagine, it's quite a complex issue and very many books and articles have been written about this. So what is the need of, of these female Buddhist practitioners that you talk about in your book? Obviously, as you just explained, they can't be full Buddhist nuns. So can you maybe elaborate a little bit more on that? Well, it really depends. I mean, very many female practitioners in Thailand may decide to become uh, Meiji. Mm -hmm. Meijis are women who wear white robes and follow the precepts and may live in a monastic community, but they are not regarded as fully ordained nuns. And this has a lot of implications with regard to how they are um, interacted with their rights in Thai society. Um, and so forth. And because they're not fully ordained, um, there are lots of um, disadvantages connected to this kind of um, position they have as non-fully ordained nuns. For example, unlike monks, uh, they do not get free, automatically free health care. Unlike monks, they do not um, automatically free transportation in public transport in Thailand. But at the same time, just like monks, they are not allowed to vote. So they're in a very ambivalent position. So on the one hand, even the, um, they are regarded, even by the Thai government, as ordained ones. Mm -hmm. Thus, um, they are not allowed to vote. But at the same time, by the very same Thai government, they are also then regarded as not ordained. So thus not um, gaining free access to health care and public transport. Yes, that's very true that that's a, a, a bit of a grey zone there for them. And I'm just wondering, are there many of these mechis or, or these, these female practitioners currently in Thailand? Well, this is another thing. I mean, we know the pretty precisely the number of male monastics, both uh, fully ordained male monastics, the so-called piku, and the novices, because they are registered. So over the course of a calendar year, there are approximately a quarter of a million monks ordained in Thailand as a people, as a fully ordained monk. And at the same time, probably around at least 50,000 novices. So we have more than 300,000 of male monastics um, in Thailand. When it comes to Mechis, um, here it's much more difficult um, to get a precise figure because they're not officially registered. We do have the Sathaba Mechi Thai um, that tries to unify monastic practice across the country for Mechis. And some of the matches are registered with the Sathaban, but very many are not. So the only thing we can do at the moment is, well, to guess. So I believe there are probably around 20,000 matches um, in Thailand. That's not a lot, especially compared to these male practitioners, as you just yeah. mentioned. So I was wondering, when you were doing your research, were there any particular obstacles? Because obviously there are not many of these nuns currently. Probably the numbers were not great back in the past because few of these women that you were researching for your book have passed by the time that you started your research. So were there any particular obstacles? And how about you, you know, from a position of being a male Western scholar, of course, you have true insights both into Buddhism and your Thai is excellent. So you're not necessarily a full outsider, but how was that positionality playing out for you as a researcher in that particular context? 
Well, yes, um, I, I'd say yes, of course, um, there were a number of specific obstacles um, as a consequence of my, my gender. In particular, when it comes to ethnographic research, it was, for example, often not possible for me to spend more time in female monastic communities. Having said that, however, I think, well, over the course of my long-term research, I've been able to develop many fruitful relationships with nuns and other female practitioners. In fact, one of my best Thai friends, friend here in a more Buddhist sense, a Kalayanamit, is actually a Thai Buddhist nun, a Mechi, with whom I've worked together on a number of projects and with whom I've authored an academic paper on Buddhist nuns and their access to higher monastic education. And most of the nuns that I interviewed as part of my research for my book were in fact very supportive when they learned that I wanted to research the life and teachings of their female masters or monastic community. In fact, I received a lot of support and additional texts in this way. And I would say that a major challenge in the study for my book was actually elsewhere. I'm referring here to the rarity of primary sources and the fact that many of these texts were extremely difficult, if not impossible, to find. And this is, of course, quite relevant for my research, as my study, as you mentioned, is to a large extent based on texts from the second half of the 19th and the first half of the 20th century. So biographical texts about female petitioners before 1950, say, are extremely rare and often fragmentary, most of them written by disciples or admirers, having often first been remembered and transmitted orally. There are, however, a number of autobiographical texts by female petitioners in Thai Buddhism that are of significant length. But this, I have to say, is the exception, and most of them, if not all of them, are rather recent. So mm -hmm. only rarely and in exceptional cases do we have sermon or autobiographical texts by nuns or other female practitioners that date back to the time before 1950. And similar to the male con monastic concern about, you know, writing an autobiography or texts about oneself, this was very often by these female practitioners perceived as being um, self-promoting, mm. as inappropriate. So this is one of the major reasons, so it seems to me, why female practitioners seem to have been rather unwilling to write about themselves. For them, becoming autobiographically active may have been perceived as even more problematic than for male monastics for a variety of reasons. And I, I actually discussed this in some length in my book. And also another um, obstacle certainly was because of the absence of a fully ordained order of, of female nuns, pikuni, in Thailand's history. This also, I think, explains the lack of a stronger interest in the life stories of female renunciants. Right. As fully ordained monks and nuns practice a much higher number of Buddhist precepts, their life is regarded as to be more, how to say, exemplary and to be emulated. And I would say that for many Thais, the lives of Mechis and lay people are of much less importance in this regard. And again, I, I actually discussed this in some detail in my book. I, I do remember there is this particular type of biographical resource, probably very typical for Thailand, but it's not really found elsewhere. And these are the cremation books. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, have these cremation books played any part in, in your research? I mean, have you been able to access them or how do you go about even finding these? Well, um, first of all, I should um, maybe mention cremation books or volumes, are, I believe, a genre of literature unique to Thailand. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, these books are printed and distributed on the occasion of funerals in order to generate merit. But the problem with these books is they are often scattered and extremely difficult to, to find as they often may have had a rather low number of copies, mm -hmm. you know. And um, I mean, very often when we looked for specific um, cremation volumes of female practitioners, uh, of course, we went to the big libraries in Thailand of Mahatula and the National Library, but we simply didn't find them there. So it was often by chance that mm -hmm. we got hold of these um, copies that um, I needed for my research. I think it must have felt like a bit of a detective work then for you in terms of, you know, trying to, to find who these female practitioners were um, and, and, you know, how did they live and, and what did they do? So it must have been really exciting when you were actually finding these, these evidences and these little pieces of, of puzzle and trying to, to, to sort of create an image of that. And particularly in relation to this female practitioner that you mentioned earlier, Kuninyai, whose works were attributed to a famous man, well, wrongly attributed to a famous man. So how did you actually come about finding this information out? And what were the sources that became available? I mean, did these cremation books pay, play any part in, in your discovery of, of these important authorship claims or were they not as important? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, in fact, I would say it's one of the most um, exciting discoveries in my whole life as a researcher. Mm -hmm and um, a moment that I will never forget. Um, but again, I maybe should give first a little bit of background here. I mean, Kun Yingyai, because of her high social position, I mean, she belonged to the Thai nobility. And uh, But uh, despite her high social position, there's a deplorable scarcity of sources on her life, in particular on her Buddhist practice and the way she acquired the enormous and detailed knowledge of Buddhist canonical teaching she must have had in order to be able to compose her numerous really profound Buddhist texts. So there were only some short and fragmentary biographical accounts, mm -hmm. some of which contain incomplete or even conflicting data. Now, when doing research in the northeast of Thailand, I think it must have been in 2010, my friend and co-researcher Kunalit, who I mentioned before, told me about a rumor that he had heard, namely that a female cook in a famous Bangkok monastery identified the texts attributed to Lung Man as those written by a woman. Mm -hmm. so this was all I heard. This was the only very short sentence that, that then sparked off my interest in this whole story. And this, of course, in connection with the fact, as I mentioned before, that I myself had been familiar with these texts. And I believed, I mean, I was convinced that they were authored by Lung Man. So having discussed the rumor and looked at the text again with this new idea in mind, suddenly, yes, it was clear that something strange with these texts and we simply wanted to investigate the question of authorship of these texts a little bit further. And what then followed was, um, well, many years of textual studies, archival work, and lots of interviews with scholars, monks, nuns, etc. across Thailand. However, the most exciting discovery then in this research was undoubtedly the discovery of Kun Yingyai's cremation volume. As I said, I mean, we, we thought that there was a cremation volume when she died in 1944, simply because of a high social status that I just mentioned. She belonged to Thai nobility. So in her case, producing a cremation volume would have been perfectly normal. Now, over the course of our 
research, we ask all our key informants, sometimes even repeatedly, whether such a book is existed. And we were told over four years of research consistently that there had been no time to produce um, a creation volume for Coninha as she died during the turmoil of the Second World War. Also, none of the major libraries in Thailand we went to looking for the cremation volume seemed to have a copy. So, and not even Kuninga's closest living family members were aware of the existence of a cremation volume for her. After a while, for Nalit, my co-researcher and me, it simply became a, a fact that no cremation volume was ever produced for her. However, when doing research in the monastery of Wat Kaubangsa in Chonburi in August 2015, we were looking through thousands of old and dusty books and then actually came across by accident her cremation volume, of which we then, well, we believed that it was not existent. And here we found it. I mean, it was a truly incredible story. And I, I will never forget this day because the reason why we went in this monastery, Wat Kaubangsai, was actually because we were hoping to find an urn with the ashes of Kun Yin Yai. Mm -hmm. So we hoped to find it there. But the nun who had a key for the building we believe may contain the urn happened to be away. She went to the local market, so we were told. Mm -hmm. So it was a very hot day. We walked around the monastery waiting for the nun to return. And whilst doing so, we met a, a monk whom we had met before, and he suggested then we should wait in the monastic library. And the library was full with old books and very, very, very dusty. We began looking through the books, and then after a few hours, I think, we had totally forgotten about a key and a nun, <laughs> because um, it was a library full of treasures. But of course, most importantly, after I think a few hours, I then suddenly was holding the cremation book of Kun Ging Yai in my hand and couldn't believe my, my eyes. I mean, I was picking it up from the shelves and cleaned it because it was um, covered in dust and my hands began shaking, you know, it was really an incredible experience. But the book was in a very bad condition. It showed serious signs of deterioration because insects were eating through it. But um, yeah, when I opened it, I again, I couldn't believe my eyes because yeah, she was smiling at me. There was um, a picture of her that I've never seen before. And more, more important, it also contained one of her texts that uh, were falsely attributed to the monk. And very important for our research, it also contained a foreword written by one of the highest and most famous and influential monks of his time. And he confirmed her authorship. So yeah, this was a really remarkable story. Yeah, it is. And it must have been an extremely fascinating day. And as you said, a moment that you will never forget, especially after such a long time of searching and being convinced that nothing like that actually existed. So it must have been an incredible day and an incredible finding. So yeah. how was then an experience of actually putting this book together and writing this book about these different female practitioners? Because apart from Koninyai, you also mentioned five others in your book so it's not just about her but also five other ones yeah i mean i focus on the live practice and texts as far as we have them of um altogether six female petitioners but um i studied many more um it's simply the focus of the book um in chapter two where i investigate the biographical or hagiographical texts and in rare cases all also and quite interestingly of course autobiographical texts and 
and try to yeah, well compare these and try to find patterns and also um, focus on an investigation of how these women reflected upon their path towards awakening, in particular when they refer to polycanonical um, ideas and um, concepts. At writing the book, to be honest, um, I found it quite difficult to write it because simply, yeah, so often um, the time to find it, um, because once we found these texts by Kunjingai, I mean, the story about her and our research um, unfolded very quickly and it led me to very many other projects. Um, suddenly I was developing, based on, on my reading of her text, a project on Buddhist performing arts. So it's a long story, but it was all triggered off by this one discovery in this monastery, you know, that turned my research in a, um, in a very different direction. And so suddenly I was involving, or well, in fact, leading a project on Buddhist performing arts based on her texts. And uh, this was then a major reason why it took me a rather long time to complete the book. I also then was starting to make a documentary film and other films based on the research that I did on, on I have done on Kunjingai, which again further distracted me from writing the book. Once I've written it, it was actually um, quite nice to hold it in, in my hands. How has your book then received both in Thailand, maybe within the communities of the female Buddhist practitioners, these Mechis, but also in the broader Thai society, where, as you said, perhaps the interest maybe in the lives of these female practitioners or lay people as such is not as high as the interest in famous male Buddhist monks? My monograph uh, that we are talking about here, not very many people in Thailand, so it seems to me at the moment have read it, mm -hmm. uh, but we published Kuningai's major texts and other texts that we believe that she may have also authored in three volumes. And these have been extremely well received. I mean, in fact, the first volume, which is um, four, five hundred pages with her text now, well, at the moment, it's going into its fourth printing, simply so popular. And I, I get still emails or via Facebook, people contact me and say how deeply inspired they have become by the practice of Kun Yin Yai. And this is, of course, um, a really rewarding feeling, you know, that you can see the impact, the positive impact uh, that your work as a scholar has on the life of practitioners. So this really feels good. As for the book Gender and the Path to Awakening, it has only been published, um, well, now two years ago, I believe. But um, yeah, I think there are now, I think four reviews of the book have been published. And um, I have to say, I'm very happy with all of them. In particular, I was very happy to read the review that the famous Thai author and social activist Sulak Sivaraksa wrote. He had some really nice things to say about my book and called it an eye-opener. But also for the English book, I received some very positive and encouraging feedback from female Buddhist practitioners across the world that have also become inspired by the women of my book, but in particular by Kun Yin Yai. So taking this all together, I mean, with my deep passion for this topic, uh, it made me certainly to want to study more and more about these women and their spiritual practice. It sounds like it was a deeply rewarding experience doing this research and publishing it as a, as a book. If I was to ask you to try to distill 
your book's message maybe into a couple of sentences and what does it reflect on the Thai society, not necessarily just the, the Buddhist practitioners, but the society on the whole and the gender norms that mm. exist in contemporary Thailand as well. I mean, first of all, I should maybe say that it seems to me that in relation to female practice in Thai Buddhism, we can certainly observe some significant changes of the last few decades. And I'm not the first and only scholar who is um, observing that, but uh, relevant for my research, for example, the number of hagiographical texts and documentary films on female practitioners, even though still very small when compared to those of their male counterparts, um, have increased significantly, I would say. So you have hagiographical films on Thai Buddhist women now on increasingly on YouTube, for example. So the suggestion that women's spiritual potential is equal to that of men is certainly more widely explicitly expressed and celebrated. Um, and therefore, I'd say it's certainly valid to say that women are gaining more religious space. However, and I repeatedly point this out in my book, um, although there is a, a wide um, spread interest in the relics, amulets and biographies of female saints, accomplished practitioners, this has begun only quite recently. But we cannot conclude from this from these recent developments that earlier there have been no extraordinary or revered female practitioners in Thai Buddhism. In fact, looking at my sources that I have been using for my book, they seem to strongly suggest there would have always been eminent female Buddhist practitioners for a long time in Thai history. They may, however, only have been revered on a local level in small communities. What I also find very interesting in the text that I have studied for my book uh, is that there are were intensive and extensive informal networks of female practitioners across the country. And we do certainly need more research on these networks in order to learn more about the popularity of meditation within and outside monasteries and the belief in the attainability of uh, nirvana, of the super mundane, before what we now call the revival of vipassana meditation in, in 20th century Thai Buddhism. So, but the major challenge here is that, as I have repeatedly pointed out, that we simply lack the sources that would allow us to gain a better, clearer, deeper, and more comprehensive understanding of female renunciation and spiritual practice from a historical perspective. As I discuss in my book, Buddhist female practitioners usually wrote little or nothing at all, especially about themselves, and were, for a variety of reasons, often reluctant to teach. Material things, however, such as relics, statues, amulets, and so forth, may sometimes help to preserve hints of revered female practitioners. But I think the major message of my book is that um, despite the lack of sources on female practitioners, this does not imply the historical absence. And yeah, I think, I hope uh, that the major objective of my book is to exactly show this. Now, this final question, because we are sadly running out of time, would be more or less speculative. But I'm wondering, you did mention that these female practitioners are maybe now a little bit more well known in Thailand. Mm. So, so the contemporary ones, there are videos of them on YouTube. Do you see that potentially sometime in future there, were, there might be more equality in, in Thai Buddhism across the gender and possibly even reinstating of this formal Buddhist female nun order? Well, I think it's actually two separate questions. I mean, we do now have various communities of fully ordained nuns in Thailand, and the number of fully ordained nuns 
Pikuni in Thailand is increasing. Again, I'm not sure how many there are, but I believe probably around 300. So the first fully ordained Thai nun um, was ordained in 2003. She founded a community in Nakompatom. And now we have um, several other communities across the country, um, in particular north of Thailand, south of Chiang Mai, there's a very strong community of fully ordained nuns. Of course, because of the decree that I mentioned earlier, these nuns uh, cannot seek ordination in Thailand, but what they do is to uh, go abroad then to Sri Lanka to um, gain ordination as a Theravada fully ordained nun there and then return and then pursue the spiritual practice in these communities. Um, this is one thing. So we see clearly a rise and more and more support uh, from society and not only from society, lay society, but also again in particular north of Thailand, there are some high-ranking monks who, despite the decree by the patriarch that I mentioned earlier, which is still valid, support these nuns. So that's very, very fascinating. But I should also mention at the same time, it seems that the vast majority of the 20,000 or so Mechis they do not want to become um, a bhikkhuni um, because, well, many of them seem to believe that it's simply um, not possible because of the aforementioned reason to become ordained as a fully ordained nun. Others are simply afraid of that, of the very many rules connected to them. And others may say, well, being a piconi doesn't mean that we'll bring equality. And again, there's a very another, uh, another complex topic because embedded in the rules that a piconi would have to follow, there is what scholars call institutional subordination embedded in these very rules. So for them, becoming a piconi doesn't imply equality. It actually institutional subordination. Therefore, again, it's um, quite a complex question. But going back to the women of my study, what is quite interesting and what I found quite inspiring, actually, about their lives is that despite the fact that they were disadvantaged and discriminated against in a variety of ways and often live um, a way of life of hardship because of their gender, one of the major points that I want to show in my book is actually that these women's reflections and actions did not aim at abolishing or even questioning the religious hierarchical structure that subordinated women. Rather, they perceived the adoption of religious hierarchy as a part of their spiritual practice. And this is quite interesting. And for this very reason, they supported actually and employed religious hierarchy accordingly. Also, in none of the texts that I looked at is it reported that women, the women Women of my study aspire to be reborn as a man in the next rebirth. In fact, their biographies make quite clear that overcoming mental defilements had for them a much greater importance than fighting against gender inequality and the social disadvantages that are connected to it. And as I argue in the conclusion part of my book, their biographies depict the struggles these women had to face as a consequence of their gender as being to them of much less importance than the task to reach spiritual liberation and escape. Um, from the cycle of rebirth. Or in other words, um, they were strongly motivated by their, what I called, karmic cosmic view and a sense of urgency for Buddhist practice. And their major aim clearly was the attainment of nirvana, nibbana, and this as quickly as possible. And um, also, interestingly, at the same time, I should also mention that these women were intensively and general, generously um, very often supported by often high-ranking monks in a variety of different ways. 
so that they could pursue this very path. So again, it's, it's, it's a very complex question that you're asking me. And I, I think, yeah, well, I have written a whole book on it. Yes. And I think for anyone who would like to know more, it would be good for them to actually read your book fully and, and learn about this topic much more, because as you already demonstrated, this is a very complex topic and it's not necessarily just simple thing of saying, OK, um, there is a gender disadvantage and it's a problem and female practitioners have been fighting against this because it has a lot more nuances and it's a lot more complicated. So thank you very much for joining our podcast today. This was a very fascinating discussion and I hope that we will have a chance at some point in future to continue in these discussions together. Thank you very much for taking part in the podcast today. I thank you, Petra, for giving me a chance to talk about my book and my research. It has been a pleasure. Thank you. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast co-presented by the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies in Copenhagen and by the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Turku in Finland. I'm Petra Desitova, postdoctoral researcher at the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and I have been talking today to Dr. Martin Zieger, Professor of Thai Studies at the University of Leeds. Thank you for listening. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.